Today from the Global Lane, Iran threatens to annihilate New York City. Historical Islam deja vu. They could do something like this and they don't mind dying because they're going to be martyrs. This is an existential war that has been going on since time immemorial. Inflation Reduction Act? Why Americans may eventually pay more for prescription drugs. Handing the keys over to HHS or to CMS to effectively legislate the price of drugs. I, I can't think of a single example where government's involvement helps reduce the cost. Overwhelmed by adversity and heartache? Respond with a biblical reset. Christ gives us some reset buttons. And guess what? There is no stress, worry, or fear in the present moment. And welcome to the American Banana Republic. We're a nation that has weaponized its law enforcement against the opposing political party. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. The Islamic Republic of Iran warns it is one step away from building a nuclear weapon that could be unleashed quickly on Israel or the United States. Remarks posted to an Iranian Revolutionary Guard social media site recently boasted the regime could, quote, turn New York into ruins and hell. Here to provide some insights on this is author Raymond Ibrahim. His new book is Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Raymond, Western leaders keep trying to reach an accommodation with Iran, but I'm assuming you believe it's futile. Uh, why do you believe a war between the West and Iran is probably inevitable? Because it has been going on since time immemorial. Um, with the rise of Islam in the seventh century, whether it was a Sunni or Shia manifestations, they essentially launched what they called and understood as a jihad on the rest of the non-Muslim world, which adjoined which at the time was actually mostly Christian. And so, and they conquered and they continued conquering until they swallowed up three quarters of the original Christian territory until Europe was all you had left. And that was even constantly bombarded. And Iran is, is governed by a theocracy. So that to me is ultimately the most troubling aspect. And the recent news that Al-Qaeda leader Ayman Zawahiri was killed in a U.S. drone strike. That's just one man, but I guess there may be thousands of al-Qaeda jihadists in Afghanistan now. Based on your research, what's your prediction about what will happen in Afghanistan now? I'm assuming the Taliban, other Islamic extremists view this as only a temporary setback. After all, they were kind of able to drive the U.S. crusaders out of Afghanistan. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the small news, the insignificant but political symbolic news is you killed Ayman Zawahiri, who was one of the two faces of 9-11, him, him and Osama bin Laden. But he really was a kind of marginalized character. Right now he was in his early 70s. He just, you didn't hear much about him. He's just a propagandistic figure and so forth. And um, I've been studying this because if you go back from the first killings of Abu, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, if you remember him, he was the original face of ISIS. And then, you know, all the way down, all these various leaders, including Osama bin Laden. I remember when Osama bin Laden died, you know, Peter Bergen and other uh, CNN analysts, Zakaria, uh, Farid Zakaria, they came up and literally said that well, we can now declare the war on terror is over. Because as if, as if it's all embodied in one man, but it's not. Um, you know, it's like, uh, it, to give it a quick analogy, you know, the Hercules myth where he fights the Hydra monster and every time he cuts off one head, two more sprout out in its place. And that's really what's going on. It doesn't matter if you kill this or that. Terrorists, as, as we've seen, if you go back, you know, you've always had heads of jihad. Arguably, <laughs> we can begin with Muhammad himself, the prophet. And even he died and the jihad continued. So I think it's more important to understand the existential ideological nature of the war we're in and stop being caught up, again, for political points and symbolism on, on the Biden administration's behalf with killing this or that leader. 
Okay, in your book, you look at eight heroes who defended Christendom. In the first chapter, I found your account of Godfrey and the First Crusade fascinating, and I don't think the average person realizes that the First Crusade was actually a response to the slaughter of innocent Christians, many of them women and children. Tell us more about this. Exactly, Gary. Um, again, the problem is we always, when we hear about any kind of religious Muslim, conf uh, Christian Muslim conflict, the historical aspect, immediately what comes to mind most Americans and Westerners is the Crusades. And then the Crusades are presented in a vacuum. We're not told that, well, they are actually responding to centuries worth of attacks from Muslims in the name of Islam on fellow Christians. And, include, and right before the uh, Crusades, you actually had the Turks devastating Anatolia, Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, killing, according to the sources, hundreds of thousands of Christians, burning literally over thousands, many thousands of churches, transforming them into mosques. And that's what initiated the call of the First Crusade. And one of the First Crusaders is, of course, Godfrey of Bouillon, the Duke. And we have time for another one. Fast forward to the mid-15th century. How about the hero of Albania, George Castriati? also known as Skanderbreg. Uh, he suffered betrayal even from his own nephew, Hamza, but he enjoyed many yeah. battle victories during more than two decades uh, when he and his troops were vastly outnumbered, I guess, by invading Turks, the Turks again. Tell us more about him. Absolutely. All of these characters, I should just say, you know, I read about eight, in the beginning with Godfrey, and then we end up uh, with Skanderbeg and even Vlad the Impaler. Uh, and I try to give a corrective, you know, of the true nature of who he is and who he was. And by the way, Godfrey is one of the most interesting characters, um, you know, a very colorful life along the First Crusade. But he's also famous for saying he became the first king of the, of the kingdom of Jerusalem, but he refused to be called king. And he said, I refuse to wear a crown of gold where my savior wore a crown of thorns. So very pious men who were driven by just war theory. Now you fast forward, um, you know, about four or five centuries, and now you have Skanderbeg in Albania, and now we have a whole different manifestation of Islamic Jihad. You have the Ottoman Turks going into the Balkans and devastating it and so forth. And his life is really amazing. He was actually kidnapped as a youth, trained to be an Islamic slave soldier, rose to the highest echelons of the military due to his prowess, and then waged war for over a quarter of a century against the Ottomans by defending his, his tiny nation. And, and the odds were ridiculous. Usually he'd have 10,000 men, the Ottomans would have over 100,000, but he actually beat them in every single confrontation for, for a quarter of a century. Um, and he's one of the most really, they call him the Albanian Braveheart. So really all of these uh, characters are fascinating and it's amazing that we don't have movies about them, but I think I know why, because they were actually very much driven by their Christian piety, believe it or not. And um, Hollywood won't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Okay, a book that should be on the reading list for every world history buff and in colleges and universities. The book is Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Raymond Ibrahim, thanks for providing those insights. We appreciate it, Raymond. Thanks very much, Gary. Although congressional Democrats claim the Inflation Reduction Act will save Americans money on their prescription drug bills, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says consumers may eventually pay more. The legislation places a cap on drug price increases, prohibiting pharmaceuticals from raising prices faster than inflation. But the CBO says Big Pharma may counteract that restriction simply by raising prices on new drugs. Well, here to share his thoughts is Brandon Harvath. He's the chief operating officer of Christian Care Ministry, which operates MediShare. Brandon, it's good to talk with you again. So in your opinion, will this legislation lower drug costs or raise them? Your thoughts. 
Yeah, Gary, I don't think there's any doubt it's going to raise them. And uh, I'll just say again, the economic pressure and prices, whether it's at the grocery store, at the gas pump, it just doesn't seem to stop. I've got seven kids. I know it very well. But uh, this issue of cost for medication is a lot like the challenges we face with the cost of medical bills. There are so many factors that drive the cost of prescription uh, medications. But I'll just start by saying that handing the keys over to HHS or to CMS to effectively legislate the price of drugs is just simply not the answer. In fact, it, it will ultimately uh, cause price to go up. Well, it seems when government gets involved, that's what happens. One part of the new law allows for Medicare to negotiate certain drug prices directly with the pharmaceutical companies. And the CBO says that may also increase prices slightly in the long run. So what about that one? Yeah, I think, Gary, the short answer is I, I can't think of a single example where government's involvement helps reduce the cost uh, in the general marketplace. You know, I had the privilege of leading a hospital system uh, for a while. And I, I'll just say, why do you think it costs my uh, former hospital system 10 times the amount to replace a simple light bulb than it does for you in your kitchen at home? And the short answer is regulation. Prices don't go down with regulation. They go up. And so regulation for uh, by the way, from non-elected agencies, it creates just an impossible environment for businesses to thrive in. And then when the price gets untenable, this happens. Those same agencies simply seek to regulate the price itself. And here's the biggest concern. This is a recipe for government takeover since no business in those conditions I just described could technically survive in that structure. So I see it as nothing more than a Trojan horse, frankly, for single payer. Well, I was going to say, it seems like single-payer is coming. Brandon, I don't know about you, but one of the chief complaints I hear people make about prescription drugs is the cost of new drugs. Now, a doctor may prescribe a new drug that may actually help treat their symptoms or their illness. The price is astronomical, and then the insurance company rejects it because of that. So explain for us why new drugs are so costly. What can be done about that? Yeah, well, we should back up and talk reform because when you say new drugs, this is a pretty complicated topic to begin with. And too many drugs right now end up in this evergreen patent cycle. All right. So we should back up and discuss some of these challenges in the patent cycle itself. Pharma companies are abusing the system. It ultimately cuts out competition and drives up the price. So to be clear, innovators, and, and I, I do believe this in, in the environment we live in and certainly in a free market, innovators should be rewarded. But most people don't realize that the majority of new drugs or new patents uh, for drugs aren't actually new drugs at all. Rather, they're existing drugs. They're just tweaking them over and over ever so slightly to keep their patent rolling, uh, artificially, by the way, to cut out competition. You know, as an example, I'll just say research shows uh, from the FDA's own records 75% of patents from 2005 to 15 were actually all for existing drugs. And, and why is it then that some prescription drugs, let, let's say those that may cost $100 here in the USA, can be purchased in some countries overseas for, say, $5? Is it simply yeah. because, I, I just want to know, is it because Big Pharma knows that Americans can afford to pay more? Why that disparity in, in uh, pricing? Yes, this is another important uh, point of reform that's really just needed where, frankly, Americans need to vote with their feet. You know, don't let drug manufacturers negotiate lower prices internationally and then stick Americans uh, with the bill for innovation. This happens all the time. Uh, they charge what they can get for it. The global market is complex, to be fair. There are market forces that grant some governments uh, just better buying power, but there are also a large number of regulatory issues at play here that just artificially keep the prices higher domestically 
than they should be naturally. You might, you know, even say and maybe blame it on Americans and say, uh, you know, we're over consuming drugs. But at the end of the day, Americans aren't necessarily over consuming compared to other countries. Studies have shown this, but we do end up paying nearly twice as much because of regulation. Finally, many people believe that government intervention often makes matters worse. We've discussed that. So what can individuals do to reduce their drug costs? Yeah, well, uh, Gary, I would just offer there are so many wonderful charitable discount programs out there. I don't want to disparage them in any way. I think they're incredibly awesome, and I would encourage all of your listeners, all of your viewers to check them out. Practical solutions, by the way. In fact, here at MediShare, we offer a number of uh, solutions like that for our members, including a similar drug discount program. Uh, but you have to ask, why is that even necessary? And so I would encourage viewers to vote with their feet, right? Find ways to get those legislators uh, to be held accountable for uh, the regulation that frankly is just making pricing worse. Okay, Brandon Harvath, COO of Christian Care Ministries, which operates MediShare. Thank you, Brandon. We appreciate you providing those insights. Thank you, Gary. Who do you turn to for help when you face heartache or tragedy? Family, friends, God, government? After historic devastating floods, most people in Southeast Kentucky may likely say all of the above. So perhaps you're not facing a natural disaster, but you may be feeling anxiety over recession, high inflation, mass shootings, finances, family issues, or the COVID pandemic. You're not alone. About one of every five American adults experience anxiety disorder. So what can you do about it? Joining us is New York Times bestselling author Stephen K. Scott. His latest book is The Joseph Principles, Turning Adversity and Heartache into Miraculous Living. Stephen, it's good to have you here to discuss this. And wow, Americans are really facing a lot of heartache and tragedy these days. Natural disasters in places like Kentucky, crime waves in our major cities, illness. Mm -hmm. First, I've got to ask you, is this unprecedented? Or are our social media, the 24-hour news cycle, just making us more aware of all these things that's causing this adversity and heartache? Well, I think uh, the answer is no, it's not unprecedented. I don't know of any time since Christ or even before Christ where there's been a, a general peace, where everything has gone great, where economic times have been terrific. And even uh, that doesn't free us from anxiety. Anxiety is something we go through one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And people, Jesus gave us the perfect answer. We get into it in Joseph Principles, and we literally show people how to turn off the power of their anxiety, their stress, their worries, because all of that comes from the future. When our mind is in the future and Christ gives us some reset buttons, that when we hit those buttons, we're instantly into the present moment with God, with the people that we're with. And guess what? There is no stress, worry, or fear in the present moment. When we're in the moment, uh, it's us, God, and whoever he puts in front of us. And we don't have time to worry. In your book, you remind readers about Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, why, Joseph? What's the main lesson from that Bible story? Well, there's a bunch of them. In fact, we see 12 principles in Joseph's life that all of us would like. A faith in God, his sovereignty, and his love that can carry us through any kind of trauma. We see a level of forgiveness that is supernatural. We see a level of success that has never been equaled in the history of the world. I mean, it's that solid to where anybody that watched him said God is with him because of his success. And, and they just said there's no way to have that kind of success without God. So how do we move into the 
level of intimacy with God that Joseph experienced, because all of this flowed out of his intimacy with God. You mentioned an elderly woman who had a painting that she was going to throw out. It was appraised, and then it sold at auction for $27 million, a hidden treasure. So how do we discover yes. our own hidden treasures? Every trauma in our life uh, produces hidden treasures, but they're buried in the rubble. And Gary Spalley and I had uh, we ministered together. He was my best friend for 43 years, and he taught me a skill set, very simple, on how to find these giant 10-carat diamonds, 20-carat diamonds in the rubble of our life. And I've seen it deliver people from discouragement and despair instantly. In fact, one of the ladies we talk about in the book was molested by her father every single day from the time she was six years old until she left home at uh, 16 and that obviously that seems like an impossible thing to get get over but when gary spent 15 minutes with her and took her through this treasure hunting uh skill that we show people you can do it your children can treasure hunt we show anybody how to treasure hunt and you find these diamonds and you go oh my gosh i didn't realize that i got that out of that i'd lost nine jobs in six years and thought god wasn't answering my prayers he was preparing me giving me everything i needed for job number 10 where we started a company with five thousand dollars and by the time i retired we had done billions and billions of dollars in sales all because of these treasures that are hidden in our traumas so we show people how to treasure hunt any trauma, whether it was when they were a child or something that happened last week. And Stephen, a lot of kids and adults are feeling angry these days. You're right about hitting that reset button. So how do people get beyond anger and bitterness of the past and learn to forgive others? Christ gives us the one and only way to forgive the unforgivable. You know, C.S. Lewis said, uh, uh, forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive then it's not so lovely. And he said, we have to forgive the inexcusable in other people because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. And so in this forgiveness, forgiveness isn't what most people think. It's not tied to emotions. Uh, you don't have to reconcile when you forgive we, because forgiveness means to release, untie, release, and grant a pardon. And we show you how to do that because that's critical. You cannot follow Christ if you can't forgive, according to Jesus, not according to me. Okay, the book is The Joseph Principles, Turning Adversity and Heartache into Miraculous Living. Stephen Scott, thank you for sharing those thoughts. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Gary. Welcome to the third world, the Banana Republic of America. By now, you've likely learned of the FBI's raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago, Florida home. Regardless of your political leanings, most Americans would agree this was an unprecedented, extreme act against a former president of the United States. The motivations of the judge who issued the warrant, the attorney general, and the FBI are questionable. The warrant-issuing judge, Bruce Reinhart, is a former Barack Obama campaign donor. When he practiced law, he represented employees of convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. So it begs the question... What were the FBI agents really after? Classified presidential documents, which, by the way, were reportedly already declassified, or secret information about Jeffrey Epstein and his pedophile friends? If that was the reason, I doubt it would appear in the warrant. We can only speculate, 
because many details of the warrant and the raid have yet to be revealed. I'm sure Attorney General Garland and FBI Director Ray would say they don't comment on open investigations. But folks, this is a former president of the United States. The 75 million Americans who voted for him deserve an explanation. Garland and Ray need to hold a joint press conference to justify the search and explain exactly what happened and why. There's already too much public mistrust of the DOJ and a discredited and politicalized FBI. Their hypocrisy and silence may explain why Donald Trump remains more popular than our sitting president. Quinnipiac recently found that 71% of Americans polled say they don't want President Biden to run again. 7% fewer people, 64% say the same about Trump. The prevailing feeling is the country needs to move on. But move on to what? Hours after the Biden administration's raid on Trump's home, the former president released a campaign-style video called A Nation in Decline. Here are some highlights. We are a failing nation. We are a nation that has the highest inflation in over 40 years. And we are no longer energy independent or energy dominant. We are a nation where free speech is no longer allowed, where crime is rampant like never before. We are a nation that over the past two years is no longer respected or listened to all around the world. Yes, like former President Trump, 85% of Americans say the country is on the wrong course. Politicians in both parties, Republicans and Democrats, have caused many of our difficulties, and many have placed their own interests above yours and mine. But America has faced big challenges and difficulties before. We defeated the British, overcame a civil war, the Great Depression, two world wars, and the COVID pandemic. Folks, there is a way back, and I believe the best is yet to come. But we must look to God, not government, for solutions. Only by ridding the country of ungodly and dishonest politicians, throwing off corruption in our own hearts, and embracing righteousness will we truly obtain a prosperous future for our nation and for generations to come. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.